wonder what it takes to go from zero customers to tens of millions of customers? You ever wonder what it takes to get through a season where you literally move back into your parents' basement at the age of 30, but then move on to build a mega, mega successful piece of software that's used by people in 160 plus countries? If you're curious how to do that or to want to hear from somebody else who has, stay tuned. On this episode, I talk to Mike McDermott. He is the co-founder of FreshBooks.com, one of the most successful online services to create invoices, to build clients, and all kinds of other great features that are built in now. Mike shares stories of how he worked through those early years, what got him through those seasons, and really ultimately how they run the business today. So if those are things that are interesting to you, without any further ado, here's my interview with Mike. Hey, Mike, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jay. So I'm really excited to talk to you because you have the kind of story I think a lot of people need to hear from. Uh, somebody who uh, bootstrapped a product in the beginning. It's not even what you were doing. You were actually running a small design firm um, back in 2003, running a four-person design agency. I've been there before. Um, and you ran into some frustration of your own, and that launched the product, or at least the, the infancy of the product of this idea that's now been used by tens of millions of people, uh, which is a software product called freshbooks.com. Um, I'd love for you to kind of unpack this idea. I, I noticed in some of the prep work that I was doing that you sometimes consider yourself to be an accidental founder. Uh, what do you mean by that? Um, <clears throat> I, I think that's the the notion, I, I'm both an accidental founder and I've actually founded a, another company that is less accidental. So, so for me, the accidental founder is another way of saying scratching your own itch. So I didn't, I didn't start this business because I wanted to build a business. I started it to solve a problem that I had and uh, sort of backed into building a company in the long run. And so, you know, the starting of solving a problem that you had makes a lot of sense to me. I think that's where a lot of people, I think people either start businesses for one or two reasons. Somebody told them they're really good at something. And so then they turn that into a business or in your case, they run into a problem and they go, how am I going to solve this? Um, but then along the way, they usually realize there's a lot more to this than just, you know, putting something together, putting it out there and getting people to buy it. So going from zero to 24 million is a pretty big leap. You got a lot of stories in between there. Um, where is somewhere along the way at the beginning where you thought, hmm, this might not have been a good idea? <clears throat> well, <laughs> pretty much every stop along the way, uh, one way or another. So I, I probably should have mentioned, you know, that the origin story of FreshBooks is I was running a small design firm. We had about four people and I accidentally saved over an invoice. And it was that that accidental moment that I accidentally was inspired to write a piece of software that I used to build my own clients for my agency and then eventually realized sort of through first principles, other people might like this as well. And so <clears throat> that's where I got started. I, I ended up moving into my parents' basement for three and a half years to get it going. And that was certainly a period where I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> this is probably a mistake. I, uh, I turned, I, as I like to point out, I turned 30 in that basement, which is, uh, you know, you don't really want to be living in a, working out of your parents' basement. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Don't get me wrong. But uh, it's not, it's not necessarily how people uh, envision things going when they they think about their future at, at younger ages. Anyhow, I did all that. Um, and so, yeah, and, and I, I think of this whole company building effort as um, 
I ran a services firm before, and those are hard firms to grow and build for sure. But building a product company is, uh, I kind of think of it as three layer. There's the chessboard, and I don't know if you've seen it, but sometimes there's a three-dimensional chess where there's three chessboards, one on each level, and you're, you know, you can play them them always. And I think product building a product company is like that. You have to build a brand. I had never worked in another company. I had no idea what that was about. I had to learn how to scale a company and lead people. Um, doing product management was hard, all, all these kinds of things. And so I, I say all this for context, you know, working on any one of those disciplines was, you know, probably ready to have me kind of uh, pack it in. But, but you know, through it all, and we spent, um, uh, you know, a lot of years kind of incubating the business in the basement and then being you know, still pretty small beyond that. A lot of what just kept us going through it all was um, just the love of serving customers uh, and, and speaking with people who used the product and loved it. And so, <clears throat> um, again, that, that is a lot of context. It's probably not the most direct answer to your question, but, but um, you know, you know, we had concerns around being in the basement and, you know, we're competing with the number one accounting software in America. We're number two, uh, but the number one is, you know, a, I don't know, a $60 billion market cap company today. And so there's the question of like, what are we doing? And we had advisors who were, you know, board members of public companies who, who were like, well, you can't win like this. They're going to crush you. And, and so those were, those were the kinds of experiences that we had to almost just put out of mind and keep going. So what gave you the, I mean, you kind of said a little bit, you, you said it was like for the love of the customer and wanting to help other people out and help them grow too. But like, what was that thing that like kept you going? Because at some point, I think, I think everybody that runs a business, especially if they were one of the founders, at some point thinks, maybe I should quit. Maybe I should do something else. And um, Seth Godin talks about this a little bit as this idea of like the dip. And he says it's like the point where people decide you know, I'm either going to really put the engines on here and, and, and this is going to be my thing, or maybe I do need to stop because sometimes people do need to quit. Like sometimes it's not a good product. It's not a good service. It's not profitable. There, there's reasons people do need to quit, but like what made you go, this is worth pursuing. I need to keep going here. So our strategy with regards to this, because all the data we had was indicating we were failing. Uh, my co-founders, I've got a doctorate in computer science. I've got a, you know electrical engineer. I was a business school person who left in fourth year. So we're pretty well educated, could have been up to a lot of things. And two years in, we were making $100 a month for the company. And so, <laughs> um, so yeah, so why, why do you keep going? And I will say, I think we, we solved for different metrics, if you will, in those early days. And I think that made a big deal. And so, so we, we were more interested in, well, how many trials do we have coming? How many visits? And we could, we could see progress. We hadn't figured out our pricing model yet or, or um, how to sort of make our, our funnel work in a way that made sense. But we, had, we, were, we were succeeding at getting people to try the product out. And then when they tried it out, they just, they loved it. Like we, we would answer the phone. I think this was a big thing that kept us going is we made it really easy for people to reach us. And still today, if you call FreshBooks, you're going to get a real live person and they're going to probably be the person who answers any question or problem that you need solved, like right then and there. And so we started out answering the phone. And so I think that that human connection, people are responding to our software, we're learning about their problems. You know, that really just, that was the fire and, and that proximity to customer. We, we realized very soon that people 
wanted us to exist. There was a desire to have something different out there. So we, we felt like we had purpose. And then once people were customers and they started calling in with an issue, then it was like this great drive to improve. And so I think, I think those things, that passion for the customer proximity and serving others, plus our innate drive to, to grow and learn were the things that really kept us going. Well, I'm glad you did because I know a lot of people, many, 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 many people have benefited from the work that y'all have done. I'm curious how that has changed over time because I would imagine in 2003, there certainly was competition in the market, but not like there is now. Like the, there's, it seems like in the software as a service space, and, and it, regardless of what it is, there seems like there's like 50 plus people doing the same things. And there are a lot of people that do somewhat similar things, right? And so... So how has that changed for you from a leadership perspective as you've grown in that just more competition has been injected into the market? When we got started, people were buying boxes of software. And so, you know, the reason not to buy in some of the competition, first of all, no one had heard of us. And that's a classic problem with a startup that you have to solve. Like you have to make, you know, work really hard to make people aware of you. And so the competition in the early days, I guess, was, against two things, anonymity, no one knew who we were, and hey, can I trust this thing on the internet? Um, that, that second one, the can I trust the thing, in the early days, you know, we were really speaking to early adopters, really tech forward people who were happy to try something new online. And that's, if you have a new and novel product, that's pretty common. Today, <laughs> um, cloud is kind of established as a thing. Hey, I'm going to run this thing. I expect it to work on my mobile phone. I expect it to work on my desktop. And so nobody is really held up now by having fear of their information in the cloud. And so that one's gone away. And, and now it's more a function of um, I might be using a few different tools. And does this thing work with the ones that I, I do work with? And, and um, you know, is it easy to use? I tell you, that's still the biggest one, right? Especially in a category like accounting software. The, the big difference with FreshBooks is we always built for owners. I didn't know it at the time. Um, you, you, the, the novel thing about us was not that we were cloud before there was cloud. <laughs> um, it, it's that instead of building for accountants, which all other software, uh, accounting software is built for, we just built for the owners themselves. And that forced us um, to, to make the offering really simple and intuitive and unintimidating. And, um, and, and that's also, you know, that's been part of the fun of like, how do we constantly make this offering simpler and easier to use. But so, so the competition is around now. It's like, hey, does it work with my thing? Is it easy to use? I think those are, those are you know, quite different than I'm afraid to have my information in the sky. Uh, and uh, I've never heard of this thing before. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's super interesting. And I mean, and also you just have, you just have length of experience and time where obviously the product's gone through, you know, many iterations of improvements and changes and features and all that. And that's one thing I'm curious about. You know, a lot of business owners, especially especially like people that are the type of people who would start a business, tend to have what I have, which is shiny object syndrome. Um, I always want to like try the new thing. So I am the software junkie. Like I probably have like four trial accounts of FreshBooks sitting around different email addresses that I've tried over time because that's just how I, like I just love trying out new software. Um, I have a bit of a problem actually. Um, and so what I'm curious about is, especially in software, but I think this is true for a lot of businesses, 
In a lot of businesses, it might be, I want to add this new product line or this new service. In the software business, it's I want to add this new feature. And especially in software space, you're ending, you, every customer has an idea for how you can make it better. So, and you care immensely about that customer. So how have you over time made people feel like, hey, I hear you, and that's not something that we're doing right now, but we have some other great things coming. Because, I mean, right now, and I'm, I'm looking at FreshBooks going, you know, when it first came out, at least from my memory from years ago, you know, it was like invoices primarily. And now you've got invoices, you can manage payments, you can do recurring payments, you can do estimates, time tracking, project management. Like there's, there's a lot baked in there. So how did you make those decisions? Because I think that's where a lot of people get stuck is they try and do everything for everyone and they just can't. Yeah, you're, you're taking me back to the basement days, <clears throat> and and we certainly made missteps. I'll, I'll talk about some of those here, I'm sure, as we go. But I think the 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 I had the good fortune to come across the work of the team at Thirty Seven Signals and Jason Fried in particular. If anybody's heard of them, and and they were really banging this drum around: do less, make something simpler, and and that was a powerful thing that I internalized back then, and so. <clears throat> From a product management standpoint, we had people telling us they wanted all kinds of stuff. And what, what we used to look for and what I guided people to is you got you have to look for the pain, not a little bit of pain, not I want this thing, but the searing, blinding, painful pain people are experiencing, whether it's using your software or using you know, the alternative to your software. And that's the thing you need to work on. And so what, what that winds up being is, often people are using your software and you think it's great, but it's actually painful to use. It's hard to use. It's cumbersome, whatever it is. And so that gets you to redirect more resources to like, how do we just make this thing better? How do we improve what it is that we already do? And then over time, you start to, you keep listening to those customers. You understand the pain. Have we gone far enough on that one thing? Or can we start to go to something that's a little bit off? And so for us, we started with just invoicing, as you, you rightly pointed out, and the reason we actually got into expenses was not to help people track expenses, but was because people wanted to rebill expenses on their invoices, which is hilarious. So now you got both sides of the ledger. And we didn't get there from an accounting first stance. We got there from, hey, we have owners who want to bill their clients. And first and foremost, we're client billing. And that's still true today. Uh, but in many cases, those owners needed to record an expense that they then wanted to rebill. And so, so we, that's, that's how we got into expenses. And, and then, you know, so we were doing those two things and people said, well, before I send an invoice, I actually need to send a quote or an estimate for my client to approve before I go and build them for the work. And so that's how we got into estimates and quotes. We actually did that before expenses. And so you can see, it's like, oh, we're listening to the customer. We're following where they go. And so we didn't start out you know, from an accountant's point of view that says, well, these are all the functions and my GL, my journal entries, we said, what do the owners care about? And, and that was really helpful for us to make software that really was kind of took the pain out of billing or tagline for a lot of years was painless billing um, and make a very customer owner centric software. But it was also super helpful because we just did not have a team that was big enough to go and do everything at once. And so we kind of took that do less, better philosophy and just iterated and improved and improved. And people who used our software regularly would appreciate the small improvements as much as like a net new feature, in many cases, much more so. So I think that's, anyways, that's a bit of how we approach it. Yeah, I think it's interesting because 
you know, I've, I, like I said, I am a software junkie a little bit, and I, so I use a lot of different stuff, and I'm logged into my account right now, and just it's, it's apparent to me how obvious you're trying to make things. Even on screens where it's like the first time you load up a screen, something circled with almost like a handwritten font that says, hey, this is what you can see at a glance. And um, it's interesting because most software is not designed that way. So it takes a lot. People don't realize how much work is required behind the scenes just to get those design screens uh, to make them obvious for people, right? Um, and I love that idea that you said of like, look for the pain um, in either in your software or where somebody else is. Because I even think about pain with some of the stuff I'm dealing with right now. I got a great account and we, uh, they're using a different piece of software, unfortunately, for some of these things. Um, but like in one of the major brand softwares, you can't even go in and see like a list. You can't even see a total of like your recurring retainers. I'm like, why, why can't I see a total of like how many dollars I have that are recurring without having to export it to Excel and run a spreadsheet for a company that is a multi-billion dollar company? But you can't. You can't do it. Um, and so it's obvious to me like when you are making those decisions that you are making it customer first because I can see it just from the design aesthetic. Um, I'm curious in the early days, this is probably more from my own curiosity than maybe it is even the audience, but like were you all building the soft, like did you have enough people in your kind of founding group that y'all were actually writing and designing yourselves or you, did you have, were you contracting that? Did you, did you bring like, how, how did that work out? Cause obviously people go from doing it themselves to bringing in contractors to hiring employees. But what was that mix like for you? So we always built with the team that we had hired and it started out with just me and my co-founder and expanded. And so we always did it that way. And uh, that, that is, I think if you're building a product, it's hard to kind of outsource that, though there are some really great partner firms you can work with these days. And then then you need the cash, right? So we were using sweat equity and the team we had, and then we hired sort of behind that over time was our approach. So by were you a designer or a developer or a little bit of both, or, or were you kind of the leader? What was your kind of role? Well, it evolved over time. And so I started out and I, I built the first version myself, uh, designed it, built it, you know, put it out there. But pretty early on in that, I had a person who was doing contract work for, for my firm. And he asked, hey, can I, can I play with this? And he was a doctorate in computer science. Now, interestingly, um, you know, very, uh, very fast programmer. Um, neither one of us was a proper software engineer. And that came to bite us later because <laughs> we had built what I call a lot of founder code into the platform. Uh, that, you know, was fast, you know, we wouldn't have probably got to market if we hadn't done that. And this is a very different time for software development. A lot of the tooling that's available today makes it a lot easier to build these applications than we had back then. Uh, but but we ended up having to pay quite a price and kind of rewriting a bunch of our software a lot later in our journey, which, which is the downside of kind of not knowing what you're doing uh, and starting out and then being successful <laughs> and then, you know, getting into trouble downstream because of some of those, those early decisions. But the thing is I, I wouldn't trade it for anything uh, because as one of our early uh, actually investor advisors said, he's like, listen, you know, you're not really that great at this technology stuff. You know, this is 2005 or something like that, but you solved a hard problem, which is you, you built something people love. And so I, I think that customer centricity, you know, that's a thing that I sort of brought to the table for sure. Uh, and I sort of moved from building the back end to just focus on the front end to eventually just doing the sort of sales and marketing and, and entrepreneurial leadership parts of the organization. 
Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I mean, I've, I've gone through similar things, just never with the level of success that you've had uh, with, you know, building stuff early on kind of myself and then going, hold on, I'm not, I, I can, I can design, I'm, I'm better at Photoshop than probably 90% of the population, but not better than most designers. I'm, I can write code better than most people can, but not better than somebody who that's what their job is. And so I've gotten myself into trouble there for sure over the years. Um, I'm curious, I, I saw in some of my pre-reading that, um, after 10 years of bootstrapping the company, you raised $75 million. What was the decision behind that? I'm, I'm super curious about that because I know people struggle with, do I raise money? Do I bootstrap? And But you did it much later in. You said, hey, we're going to get some outside funding. What, what made you do that? So I grew up, uh, the business is founded in Toronto, Canada, and we started in you know 2003. And so I would say the... I was very leery of the venture capital private equity industry. This is, you know, it's a little past, but like KKIR and you've got uh, barbarians at the gates and it's, it's, there is a level of sophistication in in private equity and venture that frankly as an entrepreneur, I, I just knew I didn't have. So huge information imbalance. And I had seen bad things happen to entrepreneurs and otherwise good companies because of that information imbalance. So I was very, frankly, suspicious and leery of, of outside investors. And it came down to, you know, one part healthy paranoia, another part just knowing that I was completely um, gapped. It was not an even information or experience footing at all. And and then I would say the biases of, you know, the, the venture folks at the time were, were focused on I, how do I get as much as I can given this information about taking advantage of the situation, if you will. And so um, for all those reasons and more, I, I really, you know, I wasn't drawn to it. And then the, the final icing on the cake was, you know, we are huge about customer service at, at, at FreshBooks. I, I, I've never been fixated on controlling the whole company, but I also didn't want to lose control. I didn't want to go to a board meeting one day and have somebody tell me, listen, we're outsourcing our service because it's cheaper. And I'm like, listen, that's the heart of this company. Everyone spends their first month in customer service who joins us. Like we're a very customer-centric company. That's still true today. I didn't want to all of a sudden find myself in a place where, you know, sort of wasn't making what I felt to be really important decisions anymore. And so um, uh, so that that all just kind of put me in a, a fear situation. Uh, but over time and over the years, I took a lot of calls from venture capitalists. I tried to learn about the industry. The internet came along and started to, you can go out and find out a lot about venture capital and how it works and these kinds of things now today. And so there's, you know, thanks to the internet, the information asymmetry is largely gone. You just have to go find the information online now. And so entrepreneurs can learn a lot about term sheets and deal terms and all this kind of stuff that, and, and by virtue of that, by the way, the whole venture industry has gone like, oh, we have to behave. And by the way, they've realized, listen, the best deals come through referrals. It's all about having a referral network of the best people. And if we treat these entrepreneurs who are trying to build and scale these companies poorly, nobody's going to want to work with us. So right. we kind of can't get away with the behind closed doors stuff anymore. It's it's like customer service. Like you can't, you can't, the internet has made companies basically have to be much better at customer service than was true before, uh, which is, I think, a very good thing for the world. So uh you take all that and uh, as a backdrop. And then for me, it was just a matter of spending, I guess, a decade of my life learning about venture and then de-risking the things that that make investments risky for venture capitalists and for you to bring them into your company. And so 
hey, the, is, there, is there a market here? Have we got a good product? Do we have technical risk? Any of these kinds of things. And eventually I just got to the place where I, I had team risk. I didn't understand how to scale an organization. And then I finally hired a couple of people and I was like, oh, uh, this is how you do it. These people are the people that scale an organization for you and with you, having never worked anywhere before. And that was that was the last piece for me. And then I'm like, now the only thing holding us back is capital. And our business model is one that does consume a lot of capital. And software development is an expensive line of work these days because of the professionals that you really want to have on your team. So it's uh, it's different. It's, it's very expensive to build product these days. So for these reasons and more, uh, it made a lot of sense to, to bring on capital. And yeah, we started out with 30 and then, yeah, now we're over 100, uh, believe it or not. So it's been uh, it's been quite a journey, but uh, no regrets about waiting and holding on. I think it was the right right timing for us. You know, what I love about that is I always tell people like you should learn from other people. And then you have to kind of like chart your own course in the midst of that, you know, because I mentioned like earlier, you mentioned, you know, Jason and David at 37 Signals, which is now Basecamp, like they're like very opposed to outside funding for them. But that doesn't mean that because because that doesn't mean because that piece of what they believe has to be true for you. Even um, I interviewed uh, Rand Fishkin, who started Moz.com and a great guy. He has some very interesting stories about venture capital and and yet like. You can still look at somebody like Basecamp and or 37 Sogals back in the day and learn something from them, but not take everything and along the way go, you know what? Things have changed. And based on where we are or where I am right now, this is the right path for my company. Um, I'm curious for you, like, you know, where where are those places where you kind of go for counsel and advice? I mean, other people are listening to this show to hear from you today to understand something about mm-hmm. business and growth, but wh- where are you seeking that as you continue to grow? So for a lot of years, <clears throat> I had this saying, I like to collect advisors. And so I would, uh, I would, if I went to a conference and there's a speaker I liked, I would go up and introduce myself and, and try and forge a relationship uh, you know, just any anybody who I, I thought could be helpful. And and um, and then the job is if you meet them, you've got to earn their interest in spending any time with you. So that's another part of the equation. But I, I started to collect advisors. And what I found was at least building the kind of company I was building, nobody had all the answers I needed. Nobody. And so I needed I did need a collection. Uh, you know, some people were good at go to market. Some people were good at just being an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, I, I think it's very helpful to have somebody near you who's gone and built one of these companies from either a founder or operational perspective. And early on, I met one of the founders of Rackspace, another great service company, profound effect on me as an entrepreneur, just huge. And I got to work with uh, in another thing, like I ran a conference with a series of people, and one of them was the former CMO of Expedia. And I learned a lot from from that individual. And so um, the point is, you know, th- these are the places I go. As time has gone on, I have, and I don't know if this is the greatest thing, but yeah, I got a little more into the business and operational. And so I spent less time outside the building networking. I found that the executives on my team had good perspectives on things. So that would be a place I would learn from. I wouldn't presume to have all the answers because once you start getting in really great people, let's have a discussion and make a decision. You know, it's we don't necessarily need to go outside all the time to get this. And then the final thing is kind of constructing a board. And as we got really great 
board members, whether they be investors or uh, operators that were able to recruit in. I, I had a group of, of people that I could turn to here and there. And if, if needed, they could introduce me to somebody, you know, if I had a really specific problem to solve. So I think my needs and my, the actual amount of advice is, is much lower today than it, than it was 10 years ago, let's say 15 years ago. Um, and so that, that's kind of how it's evolved and now I play more of a role helping other people get started and, and, and those kinds of things. How, how uh, large were you as a company um, and whatever metric you want to talk about when you put that board of directors in place? Well, we were um, still, uh, I, I think we did it. I'm just trying to think of when exactly, but I think we did it in like 2007, 2008. And so we were, probably on the order of 40 people or something like wow. this. Um, so not, not huge. And they were, you know, it was a pretty informal thing. So we had an angel, we had basically two angel investors who put in like 50 or 100K, but one was a very seasoned operator and the other uh, was a, a retired operator. And so what, what that got is, and I, I really encourage people to have a board, um, and it, because it's such a good discipline to quarterly pull your thoughts together and be accountable to that meeting, even if nobody can make a call and like fire you in there, which people will say is the purpose of a board, um, even to just know quarterly, I have to go and these are people who I respect a lot and they're pulling their time together and I got to go pull my thoughts together, try and get them down on a page, articulate what we're doing and why. I think that's just a critical, critical discipline for, for a lot of owners to have. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of no matter what the, the teeth of that, that thing is, if you respect the people there, I think, you know, and, and do go ahead and assemble a group that you respect. I think it's a super constructive discipline. Yeah. Super, super interesting. Thanks for sharing that. So as we start to kind of, uh, uh, land the plane a little bit on the show. Uh, number one, you're the kind of guy I think I could talk to all day. And selfishly, I'm, I'm probably picking your brain a little bit myself. But hopefully, uh, people like to peek in on that and and hear uh, hear those conversations. That's why that's why we listen to podcasts, I guess. Um, is I always ask these three final questions, and I'll tell them to you so everybody hears them, and then I'll let you answer them one at a time. The first one is kind of a big, broad one, I know, but um, I always like to ask it. I've got five young kids, and so the idea of work-life balance matters a lot to me, um, although it's changed in different seasons of life, so I always ask it this way. Number one, what does work-life balance even mean to you? And number two, how has it changed through different seasons of your life? So I'll just start there. Yeah. So philosophically, I don't think I'm seeking work-life balance. I, I feel like that's like you're doing one or you're doing the other. And I, I've always been into what I call lifestyle sports. So I had a bit of a left turn before going to university or college, what we call it university in Canada, um, where I was a, a ski bum for a year. Uh, and so uh, that was that was one one period of my life. And why am I kind of mentioning that? Well, I was really into skiing. And then in undergrad, I got into ultimate Frisbee. And when I look back on those two sports, they're lifestyle sports. Like people called it cultimate back then. It was very early days, but I was way in. I was practicing and training five plus days a week. I was traveling to tournaments like every weekend, like sometimes you know, 14, 20 hour drives to go and play for two days, come back. Like it was, it was really intense. 
And, you know, what I, what I learned about myself from that and, and skiing is kind of an all day sport as well. And, and being a, you know, a, I was a lifty and a ski bum is another, another kind of, you know, it, it's a choice. These are, these are lifestyle sports. They're, they're, they're not just like you go and play for an hour and leave like maybe soccer or something like that, which, you know, I, I might've also played, they're more um, immersive. Uh, let's just use that word. And so what I realized is I really like that. That works for me. I like, I mean, canoe tripping is another thing I just love. Like talk about immersive. Like that's, that's probably my number one thing to go out and do and be in the woods for, I can't do 30, 40 days anymore. So let's, you know, let's try and do five if I could work it out on the family side. And, and so when, when you think about work and life, you know, I want to continue to be in a, a lifestyle kind of thing. And a lot of people think of lifestyle and financial terms of like, hey, you're just, you know, you're making money, you're under your own steam if you're an entrepreneur. I just, I think of how I work as a lifestyle choice. And that means sometimes I work really hard. And I've had periods of time where I, I think of it as like, there is no, like, it's a very narrow path where I almost had no control over my schedule no control. It was just like, I have to thread this needle. And sometimes that would go on for three, four months at a time. And I, I just, no flexibility. No, I can't do like, it's just, there's only one path. And if I don't, if I don't thread this needle, we're not getting to the other side. I'm not getting the other side. It all falls apart. And that is a very taxing you know, thing to go ahead and do, but, but I wouldn't give it up because you get these other periods where it's, you know, it's not like that and it's a different period. And so I, I like having a sprint that's that intense and then going on to another, uh, another period. And so, uh, and then, you know, anyways, but uh, so th th this is kind of philosophically how I think about it. I, I, you know, then you get to like managing yourself if you live like that, not burning yourself out. And I think that's, you know, I've had to learn things over the years, like shut your phone off on Friday night, don't start it again until Sunday, um, you know, these days, like I don't look at a device after 9 p.m. or in the pandemic and everything like that. And those are things that keep me healthy. And then, you know, make sure you're getting physical exercise. And I try to make my weekends. I have three kids. And, you know, for me, it's just kind of off limits. Friday night to Sunday is off limits. You know, bedtime is off limits. Um, you know, I, I have usually breakfast and dinner with my kids like that that's pretty good. Like I, yeah. I, you know, my, my dad wasn't able to pull that off. So I feel like, Hey, I'm doing pretty well, but you know, there'll be times when I got to push or cancel, but it's, you know, I, I try to go for, for those is my, like, how am I doing? That's my health check. And uh, you know, four out of five nights a week, if I'm having two meals a day with my family, like good, <laughs> you're doing something right. Um, so, so that's, I don't know. That's a bit of how I think about work-life balance, but I don't think the goal is, is balance. I think it's like find a lifestyle that you like, go hard in both areas episodically, push yourself, challenge yourself, and just know that, you know, you're learning what's best for you along the way. And that can change over time too. Yeah. I love that. I think that's just such good counsel. And I love hearing from people who have been through business for a long time because there's, it's usually a similar story. It's like, there's going to be times where you're just running, 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 and you go to sleep thinking about the business and you wake up thinking about the business and that's just how it operates. And then there's seasons where you go, all right, I need to take a break. And I think the big thing is for me, it's being around other people who at least are able to kind of hold me accountable to that too, or if it looks like I'm burning out and I'm not even aware of that myself, it's kind of that like blind spot check um, has been really valuable. 
Um, so last two questions. Uh, number one, where can people find you online and learn more about what you do? And number two, uh, parting advice when you're thinking about talking to a, a business owner, a leader, an entrepreneur who wants to build a business that lasts, what would you leave them with today? So uh, you can find me um, personally at Mike McDermott on Twitter is probably where the, the social network I'm sort of most involved with if there's one of those or just email me, uh, Mike at FB. Um, and uh, and then obviously the business, please do go ahead and check out freshbooks.com. You can get a free trial there if you're using Word or Excel or Google Docs or you found your accounting software too cumbersome. Uh, you know, chances are we're for you. So please, please go, uh, please go have a look. Um, with regards to the the last question there, um, which is uh, a parting advice. So, so I, I think for me, we kind of talked around some of this stuff. Uh, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'll go ahead and note, I just passed the baton to a new CEO. We're in a global expansion mode. We're 500 plus people. You know, I'm kind of ready for a bit of a change. I'm staying on full time as executive chair and the two of us run the company together. Uh, and he's been with us for, this is his third year now. And so it was a really seamless transition after, you know, two and a bit years that uh, I'm really proud to have made. I think it's indicative of, you know, where we've gotten to and where we're going. Um, but but I think you know the the thing that has kept me going for decades <laughs> is um, is is doing it. You know you've got to find the thing that gives you energy and a little bit of you know I hate the trite turns of your why or whatever. But you know I just I love serving others. That's that's been my energy. That's been my gift. It's never been about money. It's never been about a claim or external validation. It's it's ship building and shipping product, you know, is 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 a rush. I love it. And and so is and in doing so in a way that serves others and knowing that you're having an impact like that just just means a lot to me. So I, we have a great mission at FreshBooks. We serve small business owners. I couldn't be prouder to do that. And I think without that, I, I don't know, without something like that, that's that's big, like just I guess the punch, of the, if I had to distill it, don't do it for the money. Never do it for the money. That's great counsel. It's hard to uh, see around that sometimes. I think a lot of people start a business uh, for money, but I don't think it's just that. I think it's, we want to make more money, but we want to make more money in order to have more freedom in order to serve a purpose. And that's really what you're talking about, which is a purpose. What's a higher meaning? What are, what are we trying to accomplish here? When I lay my head down at night, what makes me feel good about what we're doing? And it sounds like you are doing that, have been doing that. Congratulations on handing over that uh, CEO role. That's a big deal. Um, and I think that's the true shining uh, success of somebody who's a founder when they're able to hand those reins over and the company keeps growing. That's um, really cool. So thanks for being on the show. It's been absolutely uh, incredible to interview you and I appreciate all your wisdom and insight. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Hey, I hope this video has helped you with some tips and ideas to build a business that lasts. Make sure you subscribe to our channel so that you don't miss out on the next videos that we roll out. And more importantly, for some awesome free resources, head over to our website at buildingabusinessthatlasts.com. You can get a free copy of my book there where I tell you how I have built an agency that's grown year over year for the last 20 years in a row. So go grab that, buildingabusinessthatlasts.com, and make sure to subscribe to our channel. Thanks. We'll see you soon.